Good evening. This is Lee Wilkins, your co-host for Thinking Out Loud. And with me today in the studio is Angela Dinker, who, among many claims to fame, is an MU grad, a journalist, an ordained Lutheran pastor, and the author of Red State Christians, which has been the subject of a recent talk at Skylark Bookstore that was standing room only. So, Angela, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Okay, so there's a lot of ground to cover about this, but I thought mm-hmm. I'd sort of start you where the Q&A kind of left off last night. Um, you were talking, among other things, about something called Christian nationalism as a way of sort of understanding how this particular part of evangelical uh, Christianity sort of intersects with politics. So could you give us a definition and then maybe some examples about how does that whole thing work? Sure, yeah. I found that as I've done a lot of speaking about my book, and especially a lot of speaking at churches, that this is the topic that people are maybe most interested in, is Christian nationalism. And there's some great academic work being done on it in political science fields and and history. Um, But for me, there's two words that I like to use when I talk about Christian nationalism. And I have to give credit to a pastor named Dean and Sarah, his Southern Baptist pastor in Florida, he described it as a gospel distortion that Christian nationalism has um, distorted the gospel in many churches to focus more on patriotism than Jesus. Okay, so I think a lot of those words are kind of, they're big words. They can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people, not all of which are the same. So how do I know, or can I know, when I enter a particular church that, that one of the things that they may be focused on is Christian. I mean, are there outward signs or do I just need to listen to sermons and talk to people? Yeah, I think, I mean, one thing I always say is that I really think that no matter what church you go to in America, you are going to see signs of Christian nationalism, no matter where you go. Um, and it's not always intentional. You know, so much of this is operating underneath the surface. Um, but look at things like flag placement, you know, is there a flag on the altar? Um, Are we singing patriotic songs at worship? Are we um, celebrating American holidays as much or more than we recognize Christian holidays? Um, Those are some of the big things that I would look for. Okay. And um, what are some of the, so if I, if it, so I may see, or I may not see some of these, some of these things. Um, You said that for, for some, it constitutes a distortion. Distortion how? And so that we're looking at when you are attending church or you are wanting to grow your faith life or your spirituality, or maybe you're forced to go there by your parents or your spouse, right? Um, But you want to go there to have some kind of encounter with the divine, generally, Mm -hmm. some kind of encounter with God. Um, And distortion, in a sense, in that this patriotism and this emphasis on how important it is to be an American and how America is the promised land, more so than the actual biblical promised land, which of course was Israel. <laughs> uh huh. Um, so if I look at, so if somebody says, or if, I mean, I know there are people who, who say, well, the U.S. America is, is a Christian country. Mm-hmm. Um, we're in my perhaps maybe not idiosyncratic reading of history that's not quite correct. At least that's not the way that I was taught it or that I have read it. Are these the sorts of things that would that people would would say if they're if they I don't want to say if they're 
if, if part of their faith belief is in Christian nationalism? Yeah, so when, um, if you read the book, the first chapter is all about this topic, all about Christian nationalism, and then it goes throughout. Um, but I went to Prestonwood Baptist Church in Plano, Texas, outside Dallas, mm-hmm. and it was Fourth of July weekend, and the message that day was entitled, um, America, Israel, and the Road to the Future. And the whole message was intertwining that sense, which actually you'll notice this in um, Mormonism as well, uh-huh. that America somehow is this promised land. But as you point out, we don't see that anywhere, of course, in the Bible. The Bible's written thousands of years before America even existed. Um, so that's a lot of rewriting. And what I found really helpful is learning about from scholars that um, – Christian nationalism really started to take off recently. It's only been maybe around the 1950s during the Cold War um, as sort of a counter against the atheistic Soviet Union and this idea that as Americans, part of a way to distinguish ourselves from communism was that we were a Christian nation. Um, So a lot of this dates back to that time. Um, And of course, that was a time when a huge majority of Americans attended church. And so one of the other things that I pull from your description as well as from the book is this is something that predates Donald Trump, Absolutely. not by years, but by decades. Um, in some ways, it was waiting for a particular kind of political figure to happen on a national level, although I think there probably are state examples that you could that you could cite where, yes, this has been going on in, in places for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you respond to people who who say that or is is response appropriate yeah i mean and i think you mentioned the historical precedents trump's likely forebearer would be somebody like george wallace you know Uh running a campaign um based on now of course when we say christian nationalism a word that we often leave out is white that this is primarily a white phenomenon and trump primarily was elected by white Americans. So all this is tied together and um, race is a huge part of this as well. So you asked about response. How do we <laughs> how do we begin to talk about this? Um, a really tragic thing that Pastor and Sarah told me that he's experienced within the Southern Baptist Convention is that a lot of pastors, as they start to realize, oh my gosh, what have we done? We have taught people so strongly to be Americans that so many of people in our churches really their faith in Jesus is very limited. So what he's noticed is when pastors maybe try to take a step back, even try to do something as simple as say, you know, maybe let's move the flag off the altar and let's move it to the, you know, front of the church, out of the sanctuary. Um, People take that really defensively. And also the scary thing that he said to me as a pastor myself is that people lose their faith. That Christian nationalism, that patriotism is such a building block of so many Americans' Christian faith that if you try to break down the power of patriotism and nationalism, that it's so closely tied to their Christian faith that then Jesus becomes meaningless to them when Jesus is not tied to an almost idolatrous worship of America. Okay. Um, so one of the things that I think is is interesting about that is, I mean, I, I'm sure that everybody who's listening to us and everybody who reads your book, one of the things that makes you do is you think about, okay, when I was a kid or the last time I was at church or, you know, or, or whatever that happens to be. But I, my memories of, of the text, especially the text in the New Testament, is that, is that Christ in some ways was um, 
set up as as not not antithetical but sometimes antithetical to political power you know render unto caesar the things that are caesar's mm -hmm. and render unto god the things that are god's as if those two things didn't have a giant amount of overlap um, am I over interpreting here or is that is that something that that you might when as you're thinking about this, you might say, yeah, that is a little bit of a distinction for some of us. Yeah. Um, but people have used that text as well in support of Christian nationalism. OK. To say that we can never question then our political leaders because we have to leave to Caesar what are Caesars. Um, so that's a text that has been interpreted a lot of different ways. I think the interpretation that you're talking about is one that was really started by Martin Luther, who, of course, I follow, <laughs> not in every way. As a so. Lutheran, yes, I think that would be true. <laughs> um, but he, So he talked about something called a two kingdoms theory. That, right. um, But I think, you know, that, um, that kind of language, Jesus did say that. But if we look at Jesus' entire life, um, the Jewish people at that time and people living in Israel and Palestine at that time were um, desperate for a political savior. They wanted someone who was going to resurrect the nation of Israel yes. and to rebuild the temple and do all these things that that they had been wanting for this promised Messiah. And Jesus, in many ways, was a disappointment because of that, because he he didn't restore the nation of Israel. He instead um, challenged the religious religious authorities at every turn, and he was crucified by the government because he was so at odds with the government that they saw him as such a threat. Um, so it's really, really a misreading of the life of Jesus that we see in the in the New Testament. Um, to suggest somehow that Jesus was an instrument of the government or that people who follow Jesus should never question the government. Um, so I want to I circle back a little bit to something else you said that sort sure. of, to me, walks along with this notion of Christian nationalism. And that is the notion that Christianity is somehow tied with Israel. And I'm assuming when you said that, you meant Israel, the nation yes. state. Yes. Um, and in a way, that seems a little bit, at least on the surface, kind of contradictory because Israel is a state where there is a national religion and the national religion is not Christianity. So explain how those two things kind of kind of got melded together. Yeah. So I think that and this is something that I really wanted to talk a lot more about in my book and I didn't. Um, but I think the ways that American evangelicals, uh, white evangelicals have embraced Israel, the nation state, says a lot about the fact that the powerful identity marks for a lot of American evangelicals have a lot more to do with race, culture, and class than they do with theology. Um, so in order for American evangelicals to unite with Israel, the nation state, we share uh, a certain idea of whiteness. Of course, Jews have you know, not always been considered white. Yeah, um, I was going to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> but there is this sense of, of wealth, of a shared uh, enemy um, in radical Islam, and especially after 9-11. Um, and so all these things have sort of made this temporary um, allegiance between American evangelicals and the nation state of Israel. But it always really bothers me um, because... Theologically, for people of faith, for diehard American evangelicals, they believe that um, that the Jewish people are going to have to convert. And there's this whole idea of the end of the world. And, of course, all this is so tied to um, 
the idea of the end of the world, you know, uh-huh. and that we're in the last days. And so you hear a lot of rhetoric. That's another thing to watch for with Christian nationalism. You hear a lot of rhetoric about the last days. And so this idea that in the last days, 144,000 Jewish people in the city of Jerusalem are going to convert to evangelical Christianity. And um, and then in, in the Jewish faith, there, there isn't. Jesus isn't the savior. <laughs> no, know? he is a rabbi, but after yes. that, <laughs> and Jesus was Jewish. Um, so there's a lot of like glossing over really deep theological differences in order to unite over class and money and power and shared enemies. So you've mentioned it several times. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to follow that. Sure. You said a lot of this is about race mm-hmm. um, and. Um, it was interesting because someone who was at the your talk last night mentioned the fact that it was it was a very Caucasian audience, mm-hmm. um, not entirely, but it mm-hmm. was a very Caucasian audience. Uh, how so? Talk to me a little bit about. You said it's predominantly white. So why is it that people of color, especially African Americans, who have deep religious yes. tradition, how do they get excluded from this, or 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 do they? Well, people of color, particularly African-American Christians who who have so much to teach white American Christians about social justice, about um, being a part of a faith that has been persecuted, a people have been persecuted. Um, they have always known that America is not the promised land, right? <laughs> Many of them were brought here against their will as slaves. So they could never buy into this false idea, false religion that America is the promised land, that we're a Christian nation, because they suffered at the hands of a government that was deeply immoral and deeply unchristian. Um, so does that does that mean that, I mean, could I infer from what you've said that most of the, quote, evangelical churches that, that have this sort of Christian nationalism focus, they're predominantly white, predominantly, I think I heard you say, middle class, um, which is interesting from a, the point of view of political scientists because America's kind of always voted along those lines, um, at least as long as, as folks have been studying this. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly back to the Eisenhower election, we, we kind of know, you know, if people of certain social class voted particular ways, people of certain education level, education travels with social class and so forth and so on. Um, does race get talked about? by evangelicals in a different way, or is it something that is ignored? You know, one thing that I noticed, and I found myself guilty of this while I was writing my book, is there's a big stat that came out a few, you know, a little bit after the 2016 election, which was probably a stat you've heard about, 81% of evangelicals voted for Trump. You know, you hear this, you hear this all the time. Well, a lot of that stat is actually only white evangelicals. It does not include evangelicals of color. Um, So I was very purposeful throughout my book to say that this stat, it only involves white evangelicals and that there is, you know, a huge role for race within this. Um, But another thing that I wanted to do in my book as well is that that, yes, predominantly American evangelicalism has been shaped by Southern white Baptists. Mm -hmm. But that's not the whole story. And Trump has really scrambled things up a lot. Um, by bringing in a sort of global Pentecostalism that does tend to be less white. Um, And so you see somebody like Paula White, who gives the inauguration prayer for Trump's um, 
for Trump's inauguration. The, you see is somebody, some of this prosperity gospel preaching that has really taken off in the global south and in Africa. Um, so the Southern Baptist white historical story is part of the story, um, but it's not the whole story. And so it's really interesting to look at the ways that um, that African-American Christians are having to confront the arrival of some of this um, within their churches as well. Okay. I know that there's a chapter in your book about Missouri. Yes. Um, about and 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 uh, and about rural Missouri, if I if I understand it. So yes. since you went to school here, you obviously had some familiarity. Um, how does rural uh, play into all of this, and how is Missouri sort of uh, a representative of at least some of the phenomena that you're talking about and writing about? Yeah, well, Missouri is such an interesting state, yeah, as you in know. In so many ways, yes. <laughs> um, you know, for many years called the bellwether state and really predicting the presidential election. But then since the years of the Obama presidency has moved steadily to the right and steadily become redder. And I've noticed this. Um, so my mom actually went to high school in Missouri. She went to high school in Kansas City and then moved up to Minnesota, which is where I grew up. Um, and then my husband, who I met here at Mizzou, um, his family's in Kansas City and his father's family is from rural southwestern Missouri in Coal Camp. Um, so that's where this chapter's set. Um, but I've noticed with people I know here too that their beliefs, many of them have become steadily more and more conservative over the last probably 10 years. So conservative, again, is one of those big words. <laughs> exactly. It can mean lots of things yes. to lots of people. Yes. So when you say that the folks you know have become more conservative, conservative how? Yeah, let, thank you for thank you for pushing back on that because I do think that I mean liberal and conservative have almost become throwaway words <laughs> or insults depending on who's yes. slinging them. Yes. Um so I have noticed um and I noticed that this goes along which you know we're sitting here at the journalism school. It goes along a lot with consumption of conservative media. Again, conservative maybe in quotes. Um Fox News, you mm -hmm. know. And steady diet of opinion journalist Hannity O'Reilly when he was there. I feel like all of that has contributed to a more strident um, opinion of that. Not only that maybe we disagree with Democrats or we wouldn't vote for a Democrat, but that Democrats are the enemy. And that um, somehow, in a sense, that Republicans, conservatives are the true Americans. And again... We've got that race thing going on underneath all that, too. And this happens in the Obama years. And I think Missouri, in a lot of ways, um, becomes sort of a place where a lot of America's racial disagreements gets ha get hashed out. You know, Minnesota is a very racist place, but there's not a whole lot of people of color there. <laughs> and, uh -huh. and so for me, when I came here to Mizzou, I just noticed that a lot of the racial discussions were much more in the open here than they are in a lot of other places in America. Well, I was struck by something you said last night where you said, basically, I am a racist. And by inference, if you're raised in this culture, we're all racist, which is something that I get reminded of on a fairly frequent basis. As I, it's, I, it's hard for me to leave the color of my skin as much as I might try. And mm -hmm. so I, I, think, I think that, you know, that is all, that's all part of it. Yeah. Um, since we have two women talking here, there's also uh, a lot of discussion in your book about gender yes. and about the role of uh, what I've been reading up on called the purity movement, the Christian yeah. purity movement. 
um, which I can make a series of very bad jokes about, but I will not. Um, so how does the, this notion of gender play into it? Because I think that's one of the, for some people, I think one of the most confounding things about support for Trump is that he does not seem to treat the women in his life very well. Yeah, and, you know, we also have some weird um, differences with Trump. He treats some women his in his life very poorly, right? He also seems to put his daughter Ivanka on a pedestal. He mm -hmm. also had a female campaign manager, Kellyanne Conway. You know, so that's this weird, like, women occupied different spaces in his life. Um, mm -hmm. So he's that's also another way where Trump sort of blows up um, – this historical American traditional evangelicalism, which would operate more like somebody like Mike Pence, who, you know, you read about Mike Pence follows the Billy Graham rule, which says that he can't meet alone with a woman who's not his wife. He can't have a meal with a woman. He can't be in a place where people are drinking without, you know. Um, Trump doesn't have those <laughs> rules. <laughs> well, and I was going to and to be fair to and to be fair to President Trump, Trump also doesn't drink. Yeah. So you know that that in them, I mean, that's another place where he sort of upends yeah. a lot of of stereotypes. Yes, absolutely. Um. So I guess in the last few minutes that we have, um, it's just really unfair to ask you to do it. So I'm going to ask you and acknowledge that it's unfair. Put in your crystal ball hat. You've done all this in depth research. You've talked to a lot of folks. What happens in 2020 and beyond? Because if I'm understanding you correctly, these are not Trump phenomena. They're things that have been cooking in our culture for a long time. And so at a certain point, a President Trump is going to disappear from the scene. And then what happens then? Yeah, there's a unique evil with the sort of sense of self-aggrandizement in ways that Trump wants to personally enrich himself through the American government that, you know, we're dealing with right now through some of this impeachment stuff. But as far as these larger issues, I always end up saying, you know, God bless President Trump for, like, making this stuff come out as Americans because we need to talk about this stuff. And these are things that maybe some of us, particularly white Americans, thought, oh, we've moved past this. And we've moved past sexism. We've moved past racism. No, we have not. Um, so I I think that in 2020, as we look towards it, um, we've got to really watch closely the women vote um, because I have seen signs in the last few years of changes within evangelical culture um, that I feel like evangelical culture itself had to change a little bit and shift on some of these gender roles and some critiques of purity culture, some critiques of abuse in the church that have come out in the last few years that I think have empowered women um, to maybe be more likely to say, well, maybe I'm going to vote differently than my husband this time. Or maybe I'm going to think about, you know, gender roles when it comes to the ballot box. Um, so that's going to be a huge thing to watch, I think, is how women and how particularly white evangelical women vote in 2020. But there are also some things here that when, you know, we say we need to talk about it. I think it's really hard to talk about some of some of this in church, in any mm -hmm. church, mm -hmm. and unless you are, and unless part of your church's sort of tradition, and there are Christian churches like that, where, and certainly the Jewish faith is like mm -hmm. that, where debate is actually woven into the notion of how one, of how one worships. Yeah. So when you say we need to talk about this, how do you talk about this inside a church which has other and important purposes in in many people's lives yeah i think um you know a lot of it does start with pastors in the local churches um to create a space where we're not just talking about politics once a year um but that 
were mentioning that pastors, I always say pastors need to be avid news consumers. Maybe mm-hmm. it's the journalist in me. <laughs> um, but that that the church has for too long either been um, actively in this Christian nationalism stuff or Ill- irrelevant. And we cannot any longer be irrelevant. Okay. And also, I think it's, I mean, I know, and I think that there's some data that suggests that Sundays, if one thinks about going to church on Sunday, mm-hmm. it is maybe the most segregated hour mm-hmm. in this nation, at least right now. How do churches go about breaking that down? Because clearly it's not in anybody's best interest to do to continue to, to behave that way any longer. Yeah, that's a... Do we have a few more hours to talk yeah. about that one? <laughs> Unfortunately, no, but <laughs> we can start. Yeah, no, um, I think that there's a, a lot of reasons why churches are segregated, and um, it's going to be really tough to begin to break out of that. And you do see that changing in some of these Pentecostal churches, mm-hmm. um, more so than you do in mainline congregations, even ones that tend to be more progressive. Um, but so I think... People can't expect people of color to come to my white church (laughs) that we're going to, you know, white people have to go out as well and visit other churches and experience African-American worship. And I think that that's a key way to start by getting out of our comfort zones. And at least in a community the size of Columbia, that's possible. Absolutely. Um, You know, because we we know where some of those we know where some of those houses of worship are. Mm -hmm. And I think in many ways, some of us feel welcome. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like, no, it's not it's not people of color come to me. Mm -hmm. It's it's time for me to go to them. I think so. Yeah. Well, Angela, that's kind of like a good note. It gives us all something to think about and maybe something to do. Mm -hmm. So again, the name of the book is Red State Christians. Mm -hmm. And Angela, thank you so much for coming. This is Lee Wilkins for Thinking Out Loud.